This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Reading from chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. You can be seated. Well, good morning. My name's Zach, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I got a little teary-eyed a second ago looking at my wife and my two little girls up there in the balcony, and just filled with gratitude for the time that we have here from Albania to come and visit the U.S. and you all this summer. Last May, for Mother's Day, I spoke here, and for those of you that were here that day, you remember I told a story of something I was going to do, right? I got a canister, a cold canister, and I froze some Chick-fil-A nuggets, and I brought them back to my children, right? You remember this? And they actually made it. My kids didn't get salmonella, but Emmett, my second-born, said, where's the fries? I said, son, you probably don't want those soggy fries that have been in that cold container, but when we go back to the States, you can get it. So yes, my kids have eaten a lot of Chick-fil-A and Chipotle and the other things that they, they miss while we're in Albania. Today, we're going to center on Psalm number three, and we're going to open with something that we do in Albania for our church community pretty regularly. We're going to have a, a modified, a, a simpler, and a, a shorter time of Lectio Divina, For those of you who know what this is or don't, it's called divine reading in Latin. And it's just a way to slow down and let the text of Scripture sink into our hearts and inviting the Spirit to speak to us through His Word. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Psalm 3 four different times, and I'm going to pause for about a minute or two between each reading. And I just want you to ask the Lord, what do you have for me today? How do you want to speak to me by your Spirit in Psalm 3 this morning. I think times of silence are probably one of the most important spiritual disciplines that we can implement in our lives. Because if your life is like mine, it's pretty full, it's pretty loud, and it's pretty intense. So even in these couple of minutes of silence, just sit. You can read along with me in your Bibles this psalm. You can close your eyes. Whatever you need to do just to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you this morning. And then afterwards, I'm going to give us some context of this psalm and share some reflections from this psalm, okay? So feel free to just meet with the Lord as I read this psalm slowly and as I pause, I'll read it again. Just invite the Lord to speak where you are right now. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. 
But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people.
O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people.
Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word, and I pray now that you would speak through my mouth as we look at what events transpired to lead to this place of David writing this psalm. Be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we get to this place that David has written this psalm? We have to go back in the story into 2 Samuel and look at what happened with David after many of his military victories. We don't know exactly, but there came a season of time when kings usually go out to war, but David stayed home. And David, I don't know if you're like me, but usually between 2 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon is not the best time for me. I'm kind of tired from the day. Maybe I'm more prone to different temptations or different beliefs or struggles in my mind or my heart. But this afternoon, David went upstairs and he walked the wall of the castle. And you know this story. He looked and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And he inquired who that was. He asked Joab, who is the commander of his army, his kind of number two, go and ask who this is. And he comes back and, well, this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David says, bring her to me. And you got to understand, in this time in life, the, the Bathsheba would have had no opportunity to say no. This is the king. So she went into him, you know, conceived a child. And David has a conundrum on his hands now. He calls Uriah forth, but Uriah's character is so noble. He doesn't even go into Bathsheba, but he stays with his men who are fighting. And David gets an idea. Well, put him on the front lines and he'll die. So we go from all of the, the, the military victories of David to adultery and murder. The next chapter, well, before that, David thinks, I believe, like, I might have covered my tracks. But what we see at the end of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel is, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God knows. God sends Nathan. Nathan tells a story. This man has all these sheep and goats. This poor man has one. The rich man's neighbor's coming into town, and he takes the one ewe lamb of the man with one and sacrifices it for the sake of his friend. David gets irate. Nathan says, you are that man. David's caught. Picking up in verse 9, this is what Nathan is saying to David that's God's word to David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you've taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This is important because this is what leads to Psalm 3. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. 
Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Sin committed by David. David's confession and forgiveness. And get this, like God forgives our sin when we confess to him. Scripture says he separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. And yet, there are consequences for our sin. And one of those consequences is David's household is going to be a household of blood. David goes on to fast and pray for the sake of his son that Bathsheba bore. And you know, she passes away and then he cleans himself up and his advisors and his friends are like, what's the deal? You fasted and prayed while he was alive and now you're, you're kind of back in your right mind. And he said, this child is gone. God has taken this son from me. I will not go to meet him or I will go to meet him. He will not come to meet me. This reality is set in a bit for David that what he has done has consequences. Well, then we get to chapter 13, which is one of the most horrific stories of Scripture, in my opinion. I can't read this section of Scripture, having two daughters, without being brought to tears. The story of Amnon and Tamar. Now, Amnon is David's firstborn son. Tamar is the sister of Absalom, who's also a son of David, right? So you have different mothers, same father, two brothers, and Amnon sees his sister and just lusts after her and connives this way to sleep with her. Story goes, as you know, Amnon rapes his sister and then despises her with more hatred than he longed for her for. In Absalom, as the sister of Tamar, I can't imagine what he's feeling at this point in time. But probably even accentuated by the fact that David, his father, didn't do anything about it. Scripture says David was angry, but it was left there for the next two years. So already in this couple passages of Scripture, David really in so many ways rapes Bathsheba. I know we use that word, that's a heavy word. But she didn't have any choice in the matter. And then Amnon follows in the footsteps of generational sin and rapes his half-sister. Now Absalom gets a plan and goes to his father David and said, let me go to this festival. Let me take all of your sons with me. And why don't you come too? David says no, but Absalom convinces David to allow all of the brothers to go and half-brothers to go. And so Amnon goes with him. Absalom tells his buddies, hey, when he's drunk with wine, kill him. He had been harboring this anger and this like, longing for these things to be made right. His own sister has been in isolation after this horrific incident, and nothing was really done about it. So then Absalom now carries on the generational sin of murder for his father David. See, when, when justice and when things aren't addressed, when things are either swept under the rug or, or not, not really addressed, patterns continue to carry on. The generational sin of our fathers is a real thing that we see in these texts of Scripture. So David gets word that all of his sons are dead, and he goes into mourning. People come and say, actually, it's not everybody. It's only Amnon. But David is the father and Amnon is his firstborn. And so the complexity of this story, he grieves and he mourns. And I think Absalom is kind of like, 
What's the deal? He's grieving for this son of his that did this awful thing to my sister. And Absalom's the one now that has to go and flee to Geshur into hiding, basically, for what he's done. So three years go by. This is five years now that David hasn't had any contact or hasn't had any, nothing, justice hasn't come to fruition from what has happened here. And David hasn't seen Absalom, and Absalom's on the run. And so Absalom gets the attention of Joab and says, you need to do something. What am I doing out here? Why am I the one that's in trouble, basically? And so Joab sends this lady and tells another story. It's a ruse. And she tells about two sons that she has. Really, it's a story of Amnon and Absalom. And she tells this story to David. And basically, he says, go and bring that son back. Nothing will happen to him. They keep talking, and David's like, is, is, the, is the hand of Joab involved in this? And she says, yeah. And he said, go bring Absalom back. He tells Joab, bring Absalom back from Geshur. He can live in Jerusalem, but he is not to enter into my house. So David continues to keep Absalom like this. Two more years go by. Absalom is saying, why am I here? And he tries to get Joab's attention. He burns down Joab's field. He finally gets his attention. Joab says, what do you want me to do for you? And Absalom says, I want to go and see my father. Joab comes and tells David. And at the end of this passage, this is end of 14. So he, Absalom, came to the king, David, and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. We think, okay, maybe this will be a story of repentance and confession and restoration of the family. But I wonder what's been simmering in Absalom's heart all these years away from his father. All these years of seeing the like mess of life. And we get to chapter 15 and the, the little subtitle in my Bible says, Absalom's Conspiracy. So this is what happens. Absalom gathers a bunch of people together. And he's kind of, a, he's very good looking and he's very, he has a lot of wisdom and a lot of, he's, he's sly. And he starts telling people, you know, if I were king here, I would do this for you. I would see that you get justice. I would make things better off for you. And he starts winning people over. These are the, the people that were loyal followers of David. So you have the city of Jerusalem that starts to give their allegiance to Absalom. Even Ahithophel, who is David's counselor, David's trusted advisor, Absalom wins him over to his side. So all these people are gathering together. The conspiracy is at hand. And this is where we get to the middle part of chapter 15, that David himself has to flee from Jerusalem. And I think at this point, David is probably looking around at all of his enemies that have gathered around him and said, I've lost the kingdom. Maybe in the emotion of all, he's saying, I've lost the kingdom. But we read about him fleeing and the people that are fleeing with him. And there's this one guy named Ittai. And this stuck out to me because this is a, somebody who's new. He hasn't really been around David a whole lot. And David says, go back to Jerusalem you haven't been here. I don't have anything against you. Go and be with the king, which is, he's David saying, the king Absalom. 
But here's what Ittai says. He says, as long as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And so Ittai is one man that is saying, I'm not going to flee from you. I'm going to be with you. And I wonder sometimes when we feel like all is lost or everybody's against me or I have no one in my corner, I've lost my friends or my community, sometimes God in his kindness, he sends that one person, maybe, to be a voice of I am with you. It mirrors what we read about, right, with Ruth and Naomi. Ruth says, I will be with you. I'm not leaving you. So we get to this story, and David, it says, he goes up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This is when David gets the news that Ahithophel is also part of Absalom's conspirators. And I think about this story, who else went up and ascended the Mount of Olives, whose tears were like drops of blood, knowing what was about to happen. We have images of the next king who walks this road, who gives him his life for us in Jesus. But at this point, it's David who is walking this journey. The next chapter, we see a man named Shimei. Shimei comes out and is cursing David. And he's saying, you man of blood, there's no salvation for you in God. And just throwing stones at David and his men. Throwing literal stones, but also throwing figurative stones. And I wonder how many times when we have done something and sinned in the eyes of God, when we have confessed honestly to the Lord, but then the enemy keeps saying, remember what you did. Remember what you did. You're a man of blood. You have no right. God doesn't love you. This is what's happening with Shimei. He's saying these words and he's cursing David. Like, you have no right. You are no longer worthy of being king. So we have to separate the realities of our sin is cleansed and made white by the red blood of Jesus. We don't have to bear those anymore. We don't have to sit in that place of shame anymore. But the enemy just wants us to sit there and marinate in that shame. Yes, consequences as we've seen. But there's forgiveness when we confess and when we repent So this, friends, is the context for Psalm 3, which I'm going to just walk through for a few minutes together. Now when we read these words, O Lord, how many are my foes, we get this picture, don't we? We get this picture of David leaving Jerusalem with all of his foes, literal foes around him. And there's a multitude. There's a multitude. It doesn't look good for David, humanly speaking. Many are rising against him, as we've seen. And this is where we get into, I think, what Shimei and others are saying. There is no salvation for him and God. You've done this. You took Uriah's wife. You killed Uriah. There's, you're a man of blood. There's no salvation for you. These are these words that he's hearing. And here's David's response. And this is why... As I've sat with this, when David is known as the man after God's own heart, as David couldn't write many of these psalms and say, basically, I'm pure before you, it's because of this reality that he recognizes his utter dependence on God. 
He recognizes that apart from God, he can't do anything. He recognizes his cleansing of his sin because God's greatness, the hero of the story and the Psalms is God, what God has done. And therefore, David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Even though all these people have set themselves against him all around, but you are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. As we've seen, David's not afraid to cry aloud to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. See, we are to be people of the Psalms. And what I mean by that is to enter in to the full breadth of the beauty of these 150 Psalms that we have to see the heart of people David, Solomon, the sons of Korah, the heart of people, in the reality of very real situations. And so one of my encouragements to you is, is God inviting you to write your own psalm, wherever you are in this place right now. It could be a psalm of thanks. It could be a psalm of grief. But we are to be people of the psalms that allow ourselves to come before the Lord, truly who we are and how we are, To say, Lord, I'm not okay right now. I'm scared. I'm not doing okay. See, sometimes the Psalms aren't necessarily theologically correct in these moments of the passion and the pain, what's going on. Psalm 44 says, God, are you sleeping? That word again, arise and help me. We know God's not sleeping. We know he's arisen. We know he sees us. But sometimes we feel that, right, that he has gone to sleep and there's no one to help. And to cry out to him in the knowledge that when we come to him with how we're really doing, we will be remade. And that's what David is believing. I cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. That's what allowed David to lie down. This posture of complete surrender. When we lie down and sleep, we are not in control, are we? He lied down And by God's grace, he awoke again, and the Lord is the one that sustained him. Therefore, he can say, I won't be afraid, right? Even though I look around and I I look back at Jerusalem and I see all these people, my trusted friends, my counselor, even though they all are arising against me, I won't be afraid of all these people who set themselves against me all around Arise, O Lord, save me, for you strike my enemy. See, David's not saying, I'm going to go, I mean, he probably did in some ways, right? But for us, I'm not going to go and kill all my enemies and destroy all these people that set themselves against me. David is saying, justice is in your hands. I trust that you will do this. Now or in the future, you will make the things right that are wrong. And that's a call for us, too, to trust God with justice, to trust God that he will make whatever is going on in your life made well and right and whole again. And it may not be until eternity, but he's trusting God. You're a God who does this. And so as Shimei and so as others were saying in a mocking way, there is no salvation for him in God David can say with this quiet confidence 
that salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. How does this apply to our lives? How does this speak to you? Maybe God gave you a word or a phrase or something in that time of Lectio Divina. I just want to encourage us that the posture of our hearts through the Psalms is one of genuine openness and vulnerability. And God, here I am. And it's also one that through this openness with the Lord, through this help me, it's one of confidence. It's one of turning. It's one of seeing what God has done in the past and trusting in his eternal faithfulness to meet us in the present and then into the unknowns in the future. But I don't think we can truly fully recognize and remember what God has done if we don't first come and say, like, here I am and here's where I am. See, God knows what you're going through. He knows you in and out. He knows you better than you know yourself. But something happens when we open up to the Lord, especially, I think, our our right brains, and allow God to meet with us in these spaces and to cry out and say, I need help. Or I am so thankful and I'm rejoicing in this. Like God loves to hear this communication with us and our hearts to him. And when we do that, our brains are integrated, our right and our left. And I think that's where it sticks. I'm listening to a podcast called Being Known by Kurt Thompson and Pepper Sweeney. And it's incredible to see that like, the reality of how God has designed us for our brains to be integrated, fully integrated with the data and the knowledge in the left, but the creativity and the emotion of the right. And when these, the brain is integrated together, we can land in these psalms and see the beauty of what is written here for us. So whatever you're going through, if you're in a season of celebration and thanksgiving, everything seems to be going so well. Rejoice in that and thank God for that and come into his courts with praise and thanksgiving. If you're in a season of suffering and loss and longing, be in that place and come to the Lord and acknowledge that to him. And maybe these psalms can meet with you in those spaces to give you words that you just can't formulate in your own heart, in your life. I'm going to end our time just a couple, a couple of vignettes of life in Albania and what that looks like for us. And we can talk more afterwards, but we have this community of people that we meet with each Sunday in a very Anglican light way. And I say that, and nobody there in our fellowship is Anglican. But one of the beauties of this space in Albania is that God has brought people from different denominations and cultures together to worship in this way. And One of the beauties is introducing people to a historical, liturgical form of worship that's not known there. Like, we're considered Orthodox or Catholic or any of these, we're we're, we're hard to peg of who we are. But through these times of worship, through these shared spaces and spiritual formation, through Lectio, through times of examine, through times of silence, through the liturgy, through communion every week, God's working to form us together. And I think one of the things that we miss out on in the U.S. or in other places where we have such a variety and opportunity of any denomination to be a part of, it's the beauty and the challenge, admittedly, that come 
when we're from all different backgrounds coming together. But as I've looked around and we've received like some different criticisms of why we do things, why do we say these creeds, why do we do this stuff that's old and like we don't resonate with it, what's this liturgy about? You know, over the years as trust has been hopefully built, I've just asked people, would you be willing to open your hearts to this form of worship while you're in Albania for this season and submit to what God may want to do that's just very different than what you're used to? And I think that's what God asks us all to do, isn't it? To submit to these places and these times and these ways that like, just don't know if I really agree with this. There are hills to die on in our faith and we must remain faithful to those places. But to see people from very different backgrounds come together, I see it as just a foretaste of the kingdom of God in heaven of him doing something in each of our hearts to rough out some rough edges, round out some of those edges, so that we as the bride of Christ are ready to come together as one body from all different backgrounds. So that's a little bit about Sunday mornings. It's a messy, my friend Chris Royer says, missiology is messiology. And we have lived that out. How do we navigate these complexities of multiple different cultures and denominations and backgrounds coming together to worship. But I wouldn't want to be doing anything else other than that. We have this prayer magnet on the back table. You can pick this up if you'd like to, to pray for us. My family's on here. And it says these words, pastoring, counseling, discernment, and spiritual direction. These are the ways that we live in Tirana, Albania, to live out the hands and feet of Jesus through pastoring on Sunday mornings, through times of marriage counseling, pastoral counseling, my wife Noelle is a clinical counselor, meeting with missionaries and English-speaking Albanians that need Jesus, that need support, that need help. For the last 11 years overseas, there's one thing I've learned is that missionaries, pastors and leaders, we need to be reminded of the gospel. We don't have it all together. We need people to help us. And so these other cross-cultural workers that we spend time with are pushing in to some really complex and difficult places like Tetovo, North Macedonia, or Prizren, Kosovo, where there's no believers, where Islam is a lot more, not militant, but practiced, where tensions run high in the Balkans, where war has been prevalent in the 90s with the Bosnian conflict, where it's a tinderbox of emotion. People are going into these places And we're having the blessing to send people to these unreached areas, and they can't go alone. So not only do they go at the support that we are there on the field with them, but they go with the support of you through praying, through giving, through sending, through encouraging us. This ministry in Albania is not our ministry. It's God's ministry working through us is the collective body of Christ. So I hope that you all know how important it is for each of you to be a part of what God is doing, not only in Albania, here in Greenville, and anywhere else, is the body of Christ being prepared now to meet Jesus. Let me pray a blessing over each of you. Father, we are so thankful for your kindness, 
your goodness, your love, your pursuit. You seek us out. You know us by name. You pursue us in love. May we know, each person here, every man, woman, child here know of their belovedness as a son or daughter of the Father. And from that place, be willing to surrender, to say, Lord, here I am. Send me to say, Lord, search my heart and know me. To say, Lord, heal me, help me, rejoice with me. We thank you for this shared space together. And may you make us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.